Do you love that Peacock has ads but hate that it's free? Then you are going to love Hulu. Imagine Netflix being half the price, half as much content, and having frequent ads that give you tinnitus while also flashing your personal email across the screen for all your friends to see. Sign up today, because if you're too slow, the beginning half of the new season of your favorite show will probably be removed from their catalog. <sighs> Guys, we could not have picked a better night to go out and sit around a campfire and tell spooky stories. Yeah, I mean, the fire is crackling, the moon is full, I mean, it hits my eye like a big pizza pie. Yeah. I'm feeling some amore right now. I am too, King. I'm feeling full of amore. Chocked fell of amore. Wow. You know, when I was younger, I was really bad with scary stories. And I, I'm still not the best with them, but like I would I would of course like learn a few over the years. Like you guys had mm. campfires growing up, right? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know the the regular ones where you throw the people in, yeah. Yeah, of course. Like the sacrificial ones. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Once a once a solstice. <laughs> wow. I didn't have those. I'm jealous of you, Danny and Sean. Oh. You mean, Samson, you didn't perform sacrifices on a weekly basis in, in the Eye of the Moon? Nope, but I know Sean did because he's a dirty Unitarian. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually eight principles, and the eighth is thou shalt burn. Oh, man. I mean, we've had our marshmallows. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're around the fire. I, I think there is no better time than now to tell some spooky stories. I agree. Ooh. You guys, like, who, who, who do you think of the three of us is going to have the scariest story? Hmm. Oh, jinx. Just based on our childhood. Based on our childhood? Oh, it's going to be Samson. I mean, <laughs> they always say that serial killers and murderers have the best stories, and we all know what happened to those orphanages and all <laughs> of the orphans within them. Sean, we don't talk about the orphans. My bad. I thought it would be okay on Halloween night. Well, Sean, I want to hear what you came up with. Okay, I'll set the stage. <laughs> Board and Browsing presents The Honk. This episode is brought to you by Chick-fil-A, for when you want to feel even guiltier while eating fast food. Jeremy Townsend was exceedingly practical. One would say that he oozed practicality, if not for the fact that oozing of any kind would be the height of impracticality. As such, he had a great, but of course measured, appreciation for order. His life revolved around routine and the fulfillment of expectations. What would he have for breakfast? A slice of white toast heated for exactly 55 seconds covered in three ounces of peanut butter with a single drop of honey in the center. It provided him with the perfect amount of energy to be satisfied until the first bite of lunch and, quite practically, it could be eaten entirely in the amount of time it took him to walk to work. Four blocks down Windsor Street, two blocks up Cedar, then across McNeary Park and into his office. The successful completion of this morning routine pleased Jeremy so greatly that sometimes, when feeling a bit adventurous, he would complete the routine on a Saturday and be perfectly satisfied to find that he was just as efficient during the weekend as he was during the week. Jeremy could have continued life this way until he eventually died, which would be, as he predicted at least, of old age in his bed on a Friday night. It would, after all, be viciously impractical to die during the work week. 
Of course, dear listeners, by the sheer nature of my narration at this point in time, you have likely ascertained that things, that life, did not go exactly how Jeremy had planned. It was fall, and the weather was just beginning to show signs of the coming cold. This change in temperature did not bother Jeremy. He had long, long ago learned of the passing of the seasons, and had purchased woolen socks in a stunningly ordinary jacket. Despite his preparation, fall was, still, Jeremy's least favorite season. During September and October, McNeary Park, which was normally the residence of naught but a few squirrels, became the domicile of the most, as Jeremy would put it, displeasurable of creature to ever stand upon two feet. The goose. The Canada goose, or Branta Canadensis, to be more precise, was the only thing that brought Jeremy close to being obscene. He had, of course, up to this point at least, been able to resist. Profanity and anger, after all, were conductive to little more than displeasure. The geese that invaded McNeary Park between September and October were in no way out of the ordinary. Like all other geese, they honked and waddled about on their webbed feet as they waited for the next time to form a V in the sky. What a profoundly unnecessary animal, Jeremy would think as he walked past the geese. They They do not belong here, and they have no business eyeing my toast as they do. To Jeremy's credit, the geese did often gaze longingly towards the last few bites of his toast. It was this innocent interest in bread, with spread, that ultimately led to the trouble of October 3rd. Trouble, perhaps, being a slight understatement. October 3rd began as any other day for Jeremy. Awake at 6.30, in the bath by 6.45, dressed by 7.40, out of the door by 7.45, at the entrance of the park by 7.53. Jeremy would still arrive at work for 8 o'clock sharp, but on October 3rd, his journey through the park was the height of impracticality. Upon passing by Icarus Pond, he found himself accosted by an unusually hurried flurry of unusually loud honks. Ah, uh, Being human, Jeremy turned towards the pond to see a cluster of five geese, all looking directly at him, all honking. Normally, a distraction would not take Jeremy's attention for more than a moment, but the eyes of these geese seemed strangely aware. And so Jeremy's gaze lingered. Then, after a second of contemplating the geese and scowling, he felt the lightest of tugs on the object in his left hand. He looked down with a grimace to see a goose quietly nibbling the corner of the remaining corner of his toast. Jeremy looked the goose in the eyes. The goose honked. At once, Jeremy was filled with a fire, a burning, passionate rage that he never knew he could even obtain. The goose turned to waddle away, but it was done in an instant. Crack. The goose fell limp to the ground, its neck bent askew from a well-placed shoe. Jeremy's rage subsided, and he became all too keenly aware of the silence. He looked back towards Icarus Pond to see the the geese standing silently. They stared at Jeremy as he stood there, and they continued to stare as he continued his commute. Jeremy could never have practically described the feeling, but he felt as if they were right behind him for the remainder of his walk. The feeling did not disappear as Jeremy worked, 
or even as he returned home. A good night's sleep is all I need, thought Jeremy. Surely there is nothing that a good nine hours can't solve. And, rather practically, the feeling had left in the morning. Jeremy felt even more pleased than usual as he soaked in his bath and donned his woolen socks. The feeling persisted right until the moment he stepped out the door. It was so dark, and yet his watch read 7.45. And the fog was quite unusual. It had not been forecast the night before. Jeremy's walk to work was exceedingly quiet. Even Icarus Pond was silent, bereft of geese. At least I have that going for me thought Jeremy, as he pressed on towards his office. When he arrived, he was quite surprised to find the door locked. No matter, thought Jeremy, the secretary must be late today. As Jeremy took out his set of keys and unlocked the door, the feeling from earlier returned, but stronger, much stronger. As he slowly opened the door, Jeremy turned around. At first, there was nothing but fog. But then slowly, figures became clear, small figures, Beaked figures. Out of the fog walked geese. Ten, Jeremy counted. No, thirty. Fifty. Soon counting was unreasonable. The number of geese waddling slowly out of the fog seemed endless. Jeremy, still maintaining a sliver of practicality, closed the, and locked the doors as the geese approached the lobby. Not but a hair away from the glass, the geese stopped. They stood completely still. No awkward waddling in place or pruning. They simply stared and waited. What on earth could they be waiting for? Jeremy thought. He took a step back, carefully, so as not to alert the geese. But his foot had barely touched the ground before he heard it. Tap. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, 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 tap. Soon it was thunderous. The sound of beacon glass. Jeremy's body took over and he ran straight to the elevator. He bashed the button and then his blood ran cold. Crash! Oh God! Ding! Jeremy slipped himself into the elevator as the honk fest began and the sea of geese exploded towards him. Ding! The doors quietly shut just before the entire carriage shook with the impact of roughly 4,000 geese. Ding! The doors opened again on the dark fourth floor. Jeremy sprinted to his desk, desperate to find anything even vaguely anti-goose. As he searched through his drawers, the sound of hundreds of webbed feet came echoing from the stairwell. Jeremy grabbed a pen as the door collapsed under the weight of the geese, and with no time to think, Jeremy was surrounded. But the geese did not attack. They simply stared. The pen slipped from Jeremy's hand, now slick with sweat. Bring, bring! Jeremy nearly jumped out of his skin. The geese all looked at the phone, then back at Jeremy. Tenderly, he brought the earpiece to his head. Hell, a soul for a soul, Jeremy! I to the roof! Click. Jeremy looked up and found the geese uh, had parted, creating a path to the roof access door. Flanked by geese the whole way, Jeremy slowly made his way to the door and up the stairs. As he pushed open the, the door to the roof, he was nearly knocked over by a gust of wind. A storm raged all around Jeremy, and bolts of lightning illuminated the scene around him. From the edge of the roof, he could see that the geese stretched out as far as he could see, disappearing into fog roughly a mile away. Boom. Boom. Jeremy looked past the geese to see... What? One? No. 
Two massive webbed feet, illuminated by the bolts that danced all around him. The feet became legs, taller than sequoias. The legs became a body. As the lightning crackled, he realized it had wings unfurled, and that it was all he could see along either horizon. The body became... Jeremy's thoughts trailed off. It was altogether too much to understand. That many heads, how? They seemed infinite, so many beaks deep as trenches, and those eyes, galaxies in of themselves. Jeremy could do little more than stare, mouth agape. He did not notice the hordes of geese begin to honk in unison. He did not notice himself start to float into the air. He did not notice as one head came down and hovered before him. Nor did he notice the end. It was not in his bed. It was not a Friday and he was not elderly. It was the opening of a beak and an erasure of existence. It was a honk. Ha! And thus concludes my story. So, so where did you hear this story again? I have you know that this is a true story, Danny. Okay. Because I was already terrified of geese and this just kind of cemented it. So I was trying to figure out like where in which geographical location I should avoid geese, but it seems to be all of them based on that story. All I'm saying is if you ever find yourself near McNeary Park, stay away from Icarus Pond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I just honestly say fuck geese? Like, they shit on everything. I will for sure. Hey. Hey, you can say it, but when Guthulu comes to get you, <laughs> it's none of my business. That's all I'm saying. Sure. Well, surely someone has something to follow that up with, but there's no way it's going to be a spooky. I mean, I can give it a shot. So, so I will say this is a story I, I kind of... Not fully made up, but, but a little bit. Like, mm. some parts of it are a little stretched out. It, it was it was a story I kind of read and expanded upon. So, you know, if some of the details seem familiar, don't worry about it. Okay. Just give it a heads up. All right. Got it. Board and Browsing presents A Disc Lover's Nightmare. This episode is brought to you by The Mandalorian Season 2. I guess it's time to renew that Disney Plus subscription. Long ago, on a full moon much like tonight, two friends, Barry and Todd, were hanging out in a park. They often came to this very park after work to burn off steam. They would bring a frisbee disc and a can-do attitude, for neither is very athletic. Back and forth the frisbee would go, each toss getting further and further away from their intended target. It's honestly incredible how bad their aim is. Like, my aim is pretty bad and shit, and I only showed up for ultimate frisbee practice once, but I'm pretty sure I could throw a disc better than them. Uh, Danny, focus. Well, hold on. I'd like to hear more about Danny's throwing abilities. If I don't get an idea of his capabilities, there's no way for me to judge how bad these two are. Fair. Okay, if I was standing like 10 feet away from you, I probably wouldn't be able to hit you with a disc. Hmm, got it. Continue. Todd threw the disc and it went spiraling into the woods. Barry flipped him off, but it was barely visible in the full moon sky. He proceeded to run after their only source of enjoyment as it went down a hill. Faster and faster, the frisbee continues to roll straight through the doors of an old chateau. Barry, panting quite heavily at this point, stopped to stare at the building. He took in the castle with a loud whistle. You know, the kind of whistle someone does when they're impressed with something. It's kind of close to the, I'm trying to get your dog's attention so I can pet him whistle, but in a higher key. The structure was easily 20 feet tall and covered from top to bottom in ivy and cobwebs. The doors were half hanging on their hinges and creaked every time the wind blew. The place had an eerie atmosphere. If a building could tell a story, this one would be Huckleberry Finn. Excellent novel. As an English teacher, I could write better. As Barry walked into the chateau and a cold chill went down his spine, he looked behind him to an empty backsplash. He starts to shiver, either out of fear or being covered in sweat. 
To this day, he's still not sure. He bent over to pick up the disc, and a snarl echoed across the castle. Assuming it was his stomach, he lifted his shirt to reveal a single pack of ab. He gave it a big old slap to shut it up. Ah yes, the fan service section of the scary story. How could we forget? As the slap shakes the chateau's walls, another even louder snarl can be heard. In the shadow, a pair of glowing eyes appears. Barry takes a moment to stop admiring his ab and notices the eyes, meeting their vengeful gaze. He panics, grabbing the disc and making a break for the exit. The eyes don't avert their gaze on him, and another hungrier snarl erupts from the darkness. Barry, now outside the chateau, takes a look at the hill he has to run up. Realizing he's not nearly in good enough shape to do it a second time, he turns back to look at what's following him. Blocked from the moonlight, he's only able to make out the shadow of a huge, looming creature, easily the size of Danny as most swole. Its four massive legs, again, easily the size of Danny when his legs were pretty swole, start pacing towards him. Barry cries out, closes his eyes, and prepares to throw his beloved disc one final time. As he's about to let go of the frisbee, a whimper can be heard from the creature. Barry pauses and waits for his death. After 10 seconds, he opens his eyes to realize he is still alive. He brings the disc in as he uh, gives himself a triumphant hug, only to hear snarling again. Confused, he starts extending his arm and whimpers are heard. Back and forth, he moves the frisbee to and from his body. Realizing the creature wants to catch one of his sickest throws, he releases the prize disc. The monster pounces after it and Barry takes off running. He emerges from the bush and runs straight into Todd, who has started his search for him. Dude, where have you been? I was worried you had lost my Nan's disc. Bro. You're not going to believe what I found. Legit, probably almost die. We need to run. But bro, what about my Nan's disc? She needs it for her tournament on Sunday. As Barry was about to respond, a howl can be heard from the distance. Barry grabs Todd by the shoulders and they begin to head towards their ride. That's what I was talking about! Now run, bro! Barry and Todd make it to their car and Barry starts looking for his keys. He quickly realizes the keys were back where they had set up their toss and stored safely in his gym bag. Knowing how much he needed to run, the keys were guaranteed to fall out of his pocket otherwise and neither of the boys want to call the cops for, her for searching the grounds a second time. Dude, open the fucking doors. I can't, my keys are in my bag. Shit, shit, shit. Are we gonna die out here? Probably. I'll try to recall whatever moves I learned from that one martial arts class back in second grade. Otherwise, I'm out of options. Bro, it was a pleasure knowing you. The two embrace in a tender hug as the predator emerges from the shadows, slobbering and growling. Now that's adorable. I'm jealous. I haven't given anyone a hug that solid in ages. Haha, <laughs> same. Anyways. The boys look up to see the largest wolf they have ever seen, carrying Todd's disc in his mouth. Holy shit, dude. It's my nan's disc. The absolute unit of a wolf walks towards Barry, drops the disc, and proceeds to start wagging its tail. It nudges the disc even closer. With every nudge, it steps more and more into the moonlight until it's fully exposed. The light covers the wolf's body and it howls, slowly changing into a human. The human puts the disc in its mouth and walks up to the boys, shaking the peach its mother gave him. Todd and Barry look at each other with bewilderment. That's a human. I see that's a human. But it for sure wasn't a human. No, it absolutely was not. Say what you will, but he's quite well endowed. Not the first thing on my mind, but you're totally right. The former wolf continues to pant excitedly, dropping the disc and moving back into the shadows. As soon as it does, its body shifts back into a wolf. Who wants us to throw a frisbee? And now it's a wolf. Should we throw it? I'm so confused. Barry picks up the disc and lets it rip as the wolf-human hybrid sprints after it. It comes back to the duo, dropping the disc and turning back into a human. What are those things called that turn into wolves when the full moon is out? A werewolf. I think this thing might be the opposite. Is that even possible? You're seeing the same shit I am. What should we do with it? 
I think we already know the answer. The two give each other a look and the werehuman simply wags. Todd picks him up and Fireman carries him over to their car. Barry runs and get the keys. The three head into his energy efficient sedan and drive off into the moonlight. That's it? What happened to the three? Yeah, Danny, that might be one of the least scary stories I've ever heard. Unrealistic too, like the odds that the werehuman doesn't eat them is so slim. Hold on, hold on, I'm getting to it. God, you guys are so impatient. Barry, Todd, and the Werehuman lived together for the next few years. The two boys would teach it English every month when it, the Werehuman turned. It became quite proficient in Latin and Greek as the Werehuman was a quick study. It eventually enrolled at the University of Phoenix and double majored in theater and political science. They, of course, got into their fair share of disagreements over the years. Barry was terrible at doing the dishes. The Werehuman kept making a mess of the common space whenever his pack came to visit. Todd would shit on the floor and the Werehuman was tired of picking it up. You know common occurrences. Eventually, the were-human was fed up with having to pay more rent than the others and moved out. Todd and Barry were sad, but learned a valuable lesson. Always bring a spare disc. Yeah, that didn't get better. Is, is that a lesson? I think so. To be fair, I got this inspiration from a story after reading an obituary about two dudes getting lost in the woods and getting mauled by a pack of wolves. I mean, if they had a second disc, I think they might have survived. Amen. Well, uh, I tell you, I'm going to bring a disc next time we go uh, moonlight camping like we are right now. I know, that was like sexier Twilight. <laughs> Which you might think is impossible, but hey. No, it had fan service. He was well endowed. Mm -hmm. He was. <laughs> and the imagery, you know, I could just... I could just picture it, you know, I really could. I, I, I mm -hmm. thought comparing mm -hmm. the wolf to how swole I was would give you guys a good, like, point of reference, as well as how bad I could throw, because, you know, you know me. The, this is things you know about me. Yeah. Well, so the issue with comparing something to how swole you are is that I almost don't believe it's possible because you're so jack-ripped. Mm. Yep. Mm -hmm. My big old muscle. Like, literally like a silverback gorilla. Yeah, they're bigger than my ass, which is crazy. That's saying something. Which also seems impossible. That's really saying something. Nah, I mean, this scary story, like, it it, it gave me chills. Like, I, I was terrified mm -hmm. when I first heard it. Yeah, I mean, it gave me chills. And, you know, speaking of Samson's ass, let's see. Samson, do you think you can pull something out of there right now? <laughs> I do. I do think I can pull something out of there right now. Ah, nice. I think I got me a story featuring our good friend, Buster Baxter Banana. <gasps> I'm fucking terrified already. Doodly doodly doo. Board and Browsing presents the Buster Baxter Banana Halloween Spooktacular. This episode is sponsored by Autumn, the only season where your internal temperature never matches what's going on outside. Many things in the life of the anthropomorphic banana named Buster Baxter Banana had shit the bed long before his marriage did. The list was as extensive as it was harrowing, but if one were to select the three most notable things to have shit the bed at this point, most would have listed their top three as one, his career. For he arrived at his place of work too many times harboring a fragrance of vomit, gin, and a heavy shroud of Axe body spray, and effectively intended to block out the other smells. Two, his relationship with his children. For Buster had realized far too late that the amount of times you can cry in front of your children after drinking six cups of tequila mixed with tap water is finite, and they will always eventually grow to resent you. And the third notable, th notable thing to shit the bed while Buster was still wrapped in the cold husk of a marriage was himself, or most specifically, the couch bed, which he had been banished to sleep on many months, many months ago. 
Was it the smell or the sensation of lying in a thick oatmeal that woke him first? Only God knows the answer to that question, as Buster was still too drunk from when he had passed out at 11 a.m. that he can no longer remember. Why the hell did nobody wake me up? Am I such an outcast among my own flesh and blood that nobody woke me when I duked the bed? Hollered Buster with more than a touch of sorrow tinged anger in his voice. Nobody answered. Is the silence because nobody heard, or because they're mad at me for abbreviating? <laughs> Dookie! <laughs> they're mad at me for abbreviating Dookie to Duke again! Buster thought to himself. That's when Buster realized that his family likely did not reply to his pained yells because they did not care if he lived or died. Buster pushed the thought <laughs> Keep going! <laughs> I'm fucking spooked. Buster pushed the thought from his mind by grabbing the bottle of gin from the coffee table. Within seconds, he had forgotten the disturbing thought, as well as the Duke. Looking down at his nice second-hand Razor flip phone that he had purchased on eBay, Buster saw that the time was 3.33 a.m., and the date was none other than Friday the 13th. <laughs> well, good golly! It's the witching hour! And Halloween! <laughs> <laughs> the, the highly superstitious Buster ex exclaimed before nervously taking another gulp from his plastic bottle of paradise. Unfortunately, our banana protagonist Squig was cut short by a knock at the door, causing him to jolt and spill his drink on himself. For a tense moment, Buster froze. For he knew better than anybody that a knock on the door at this time of night could only be trouble. Paralyzed by fear, Buster only re-emerged from stasis when he realized that he was unsure how much of his precious gin had ejaculated from the bottle. Looking down, Buster yelped, That's my entire bottle! Slurred Buster as his eyes moved to his shirt, which made him look like he had participated in a gin-based wet t-shirt contest. Now I have to choose between buying more gin and getting my children presents for Christmas. But Buster's words of despair were cut short. This time, there was no knock. Instead, the doorbell began to ch chime to the tune of Under Pressure. For you see, Buster, in a drunken stupor the month prior, had hired a man named Chuck to install a doorbell that would play his favorite song, Ice Ice Baby. Chuck insisted that the chime had to be referred to as Under Pressure because the installation company did not have the rights to Ice Ice Baby, but stopped emphasizing this point once a very drunk and confused Buster threatened aggravated assault against him if he did not install Ice Ice Baby. Anyways, I digress. The only thing that matters is the doorbell rang, and for the second time in Buster's life, Ice Ice Baby pierced through his armor of alcohol and filled him with deep, unshakable dread. Buster tried to jump back in his couch bed and hide under the sheets, but for obvious reasons that are better left unspoken, that was the wrong choice. <laughs> Several moments later, Buster realized his mistake and hopped to his feet. The alcohol had possibly helped him forget a bit too much. That's when, on the glass of the window, there was a tap, tap, tap. As if moving his head through molasses, Buster turned to look. Cold sweat poured down his smooth banana skin as he saw a man in a trench coat and a balaclava holding an axe. In a harsh, whispery voice, the man spoke, Let me in. 
Buster screamed and ran to the basement. <laughs> he knew what had to be done. When Buster re-emerged from the basement, he held a sawed-off shotgun. He had never used it before, and maybe it was the gin, but he felt immense confident in his ability to wield the deadly, to wield the deadly weapon as he cocked it. Despite his cowardice, the, in this moment, Buster felt invincible. There was another rap on the window as thunder clapped and rain pelted the earth from the black heavens. Let me in! The axe-wielding maniac screamed at Buster, not knowing they would be his last words. BAM! Buckshot blasted through the window as well as the chest of the Cretan on the other side. The impact knocked Buster on his bottom bazongas with a thud, and he proceeded to massage them like stiff dough until he remembered that he had just shot a man. Buster leapt to his feet and threw himself out the shattered window. There was a sickening splat as Buster face planted into the body, into the into the bloody, freshly opened chest cavity of Matthew Schaefer, whom Buster knew by the title of father-in-law and whom Americans knew by the title Uncle Cracker. It was in that moment that a snowflake landed on Buster's bottom nub and it all came flattening back. It hadn't been raining. It was snowing the entire time. If Buster had been less junk, he would not have take, it would not have taken him up to this moment to realize that it was not Friday the 13th. Nor was it Halloween. It was mid-December. <laughs> and in order to regain the ever-fading love of his wife and children, Buster had schemed to cut down a Christmas tree with his father-in-law, Matt Uncle Cracker Schaefer, <laughs> and surprise his family with the biggest, most beautiful fir tree they had ever seen waiting for them in the living room when they woke up. Buster began to weep, and he looked ugly as all get out. When his deep, shuddering sobs finally subsided, he looked at the corpse of his father-in-law and said, Guess it's for the best that our trip in the tree were a secret surprise. Before lifting up his body and schlepping it into the family Subaru. <laughs> Twas a long trip cutting that tree down by himself. First, Buster, still blackout drunk, had to drive all the way down the street to his neighbor's house because they had the best trees. Then... Buster had to cut down their tree using Matt Schaefer's axe while trying not to wake up the family. Buster realized too late that there were at least 20 of acres of woods behind the house because of his drunk blindness. Thankfully though, Buster realized this early enough that he was able to dig a shallow grave and bury Matt a safe 10 acres into the woods. Buster returned to his car and tightened the straps of the Christmas tree to the roof before looking at the beauty of the suburban white tableau. The world was quiet, and Buster felt alone and at peace for the first time in longer than he could remember. Fortunately, the phrase, longer than he could remember, for Buster at least, also included the fact that he couldn't remember murdering and burying his father-in-law. <laughs> it bears repeating, it is possible that the alcohol helped Buster forget just a smidge too well. However, Buster did not contemplate such things as he was suddenly driving back down the road to his house with no memory of how he got there after taking in the scenery. He tried to retrace his steps, but his train of thought was knocked off the tracks by a police car turning its lights to pull him over. What happened next is of little memory to Buster, so it should bear little importance to you. All you need to know is what Buster needed to know. Buster Baxter Banana spent a brief moment in prison for getting a DUI while trying to bring a Christmas tree home for his family. I'm a hero. 
he said to himself with despair in his cell, waiting for his bail to be posted, though it would not actually be posted for several more days. I can't believe my family and children have abandoned me. They never did figure out what happened to Uncle Cracker, but some say that if you chopped down a Christmas tree from your neighbor's yard, he just might get ya! <laughs> well, uh... Definitely wasn't my favorite scary story, but that was something, Samson. I'm shaking in my boots. <laughs> wow, I feel like this has got big Nightmare Before Christmas energy. Kind of a Christmas thing, kind of a Halloween thing, but also obviously yeah. a classic. Ready to be made into a claymation. <laughs> it's going straight to DVD. I know that seeing kids all over the United States are going to be wearing Buster Baxter Banana Halloween Spooktacular mm -hmm. t-shirts. Let's all, and let's remember, and to you listening at home and your families, this Christmas and this Halloween, wear yellow to remember our hero, Buster Baxter Banana. And I guess don't wear white after Labor Day? Is that the rules? You can wear white as long as you're a banana. Yep. Alright. Otherwise you can't. Guys, I, I I love telling spooky stories with you. I, I think this is a great way for us to like, you know, get out of the house, sit on some fire, roast some marshies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Keep our toes warm. Amen. Do a little <laughs> kissing now and then. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. I just love being around the fire with two good friends and my, you know, big old badonk donk is being, you know, truly appreciated by those around me and that's what matters that's what yeah. halloween's all about and you know i love economic justice that's what halloween's all about so happy halloween from the board and browsing team thank you for sitting with us around the fire and we'll catch you all next time my name is danny i'm sean and i'm samson bye boo i